The 2023 Ag Outlook Forum has wrapped up in Washington, D.C., with USDA predicting a banner year for U.S. row crops. But how will this forecast and looming issues from avian influenza to waters of the U.S. shape policy in the year to come? That's today on Field Posts. a DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. The 99th annual Ag Outlook Forum ran from February 23rd and 24th, two days jam-packed with new information from USDA experts and lessons learned from across the industry. DTN Ag Policy Editor Chris Clayton is here to surface the highlights for us, from a market-moving look at the 2023 crop year to USDA's analysis on the livestock industry as cattle inventory continues to draw down. Chris will dig into the words of U.S. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack on the department's priorities for the year and the conversation he had with the EU Ag Commissioner, touching in particular on the war in Ukraine. He'll also touch on headline-grabbing sessions about the persistence of avian influenza and industry priorities around the Farm Bill and climate discussions. We'll also be checking in on a host of other stories Chris reported on while in the nation's capital, from a House vote on waters of the U.S. to a growing conservation program debate, right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential, more than ever, to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable. Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent, trusted source of actionable insights and market information, MyDTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24-7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at MyDTN.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. DTN Ag Policy Editor Chris Clayton joins us today to bring us the latest from this year's Ag Outlook Forum in Washington, D.C. Chris, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you expected to hear or expected to be the key issues going into Outlook this year. What was the biggest news in your eyes? The biggest thing that always jumps out at USDA Outlook is the early forecast on crops, particularly. And normally, in the past, you would have the uh, speech from the chief economist, and he would tease out some things that day. And then the next morning, they would release the full numbers for the outlook of each sector. And they usually keep those very protective, and they will not release them until Friday morning. This time, they released them on Thursday morning. So we got the projection. They see that farmers are going to plant 2.4 million more acres of corn and produce a 15 billion bushel corn crop, 181.5 bushels per acre, which is um, is quite significant. So just the numbers that were released on Thursday by USDA were, were surprising. Particularly, they were very bullish on production, which then led to bearish reactions from the market. 
I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about maybe what USDA said about those predictions. Is this kind of economist looking at just planting and predictions or surveys? Where does this kind of prediction come from? It comes from the USDA chief economist. Lord knows what goes into all of the things they look at putting this together, but I think they believe that they will see some more, they believe more normal planting weather this year than maybe we've seen in the last couple of years, which is interesting because we've gone from intense rains and and flooding in 2019 to dry conditions in 2021 and 22. And yet spring each season has gotten screwed up by cold weather or rain events. It's It's been a hodgepodge of things, but this year they seem to think things will be a little more settled out. And we'll see. I always look at the outlook numbers like fantasy baseball for agriculture. We're going to produce 151.8 bushels per acre. Just like saying the Yankees are going to win 96 games and the Kansas City Royals are going to win 78 games. They're just basically forecasting out, but it's it's best guess. But the markets and the readers really absorb it. So. so something to keep an eye on. I wonder, I think one of the other things that people, besides the conversation from the chief economist that people look out for at Outlook is the kind of message from the secretary and what the kind of the themes or the big ideas there are maybe something to focus on as we think about policy going forward in the year. What did Secretary Vilsack kind of focus on this year at Outlook? And do you think that will have any bearing on maybe policy discussions going forward? It's interesting with Secretary Vilsack, you will, if you hear a speech from him once, you will hear that same speech over and over again for about the next three or four months. So I can already tell you what he's going to say at Commodity Classic based on what he said at the Ag Outlook Forum and what he said at an event earlier that week in um, in Virginia. And they're trying to hit some messaging when it comes to the farm bill. And he's pointed out that a lot that income was a record income in 2022, and yet 90% of farmers either lost income or had to rely heavily on an off-farm job in the USDA's focus, they will say that there is more a greater need for more programs that help the smaller farmers, more, more diverse types of programs in the farm bill that help others. And, and where USDA has put its focus on some of that primarily sits with rural development and helping out the smaller farmers with rural development and rural energy. So maybe not directly commodities like the commodity programs, like you would see with the larger corn, soybean, wheat farmers, et cetera, but other different kinds of programs. Now, how much that message resonates with Congress remains to be seen, but that's, uh, I noticed he I picked up on him repeating that same kind of theme two or three times last week. Now, he did have a big discussion Friday morning with the European agriculture minister, and uh, and that was a, a very interesting discussion about, obviously, big focus on the uh, Russian invasion and the concerns about food security, the um, 
EU uh, ag minister is from Poland, and so he came at it very much at a of being deeply concerned about if if Ukraine falls, Poland may be next. They don't want to see that. I just thought that was a discussion on how both sides of the Atlantic have focused on different policies to try to help with food security issues with the invasion of Ukraine. So that was pretty good, and they talked a lot about sustainability between the two sides and. Atlantic in the U.S. as well, but mostly there was just a very good discussion about about Ukraine and the needs to for both European farmers and American farmers trying to find some access to help them with fertilizer issues, things of that nature. But the Outlook Conference can show you a lot of trends and discussions. It doesn't make a lot of real hard news. Sometimes Phil Sack doesn't get up there and say throw out a new policy. Hey, we're going to spend $10 billion on this or whatever. That generally doesn't happen as much. Speaking of uh, USDA policy, spent big spending projects, I think you actually, you just mentioned it, heading to another event in Virginia last week where the secretary went to a poultry processing facility that was just the recipient of one of the big kind of climate smart grants. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, what the event was, talk a little bit about USDA's program and what did Bill Sachs say maybe about that allocation. It was in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and it was a an organic poultry processor who that company called Farmers Focus that received some grant money to expand production at their facility. And in the grand scheme of things, their grant really wasn't as big as a lot of other places, but it was like 3.6 million. And and they have a lot of smaller growers. They don't have a lot of big growers in terms of chickens and they do something a little different than than the tournament system in terms of paying poultry growers so they had a couple of there was one farmer there who was 20 years old and owned a few chicken barns that his grandparents had originally owned there was another woman there who she and her spouse came back from they were in england teaching and came back and took over their parents farm and then they started a poultry uh, growing operation and they sell organic chickens to this place as well so it, it was interesting and this was again where Vilsack starts to come into this smaller farmers making a living and he sees this as the, this value added opportunity that, that helps a wider range of smaller producers and that was stressed in the theme that, again, he was repeating throughout the week. But it was an interesting place. And in this also just happens to be, it's an area that's concentrated with poultry production. And Virginia just now recently was starting to get hit with avian influenza as well. So there was a little bit of concern at this discussion about avian influenza possibly hitting more of the broiler operations in that area. We'll need to see about that going forward. But he was hitting on, Phil Sack was hitting on those, quote, local and regional food systems that, and the opportunity that helps spread to, to farmers. Speaking of avian influenza, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, I know it was a topic of discussion at Outlook over the last 18 months or so. We've thought of this current outbreak as maybe a an acute event, but it sounds like maybe some experts who are tracking the progress of the disease and its impacts might think something a little different. So I wonder if you could talk about what you heard. Well, it was very interesting in that looking at the contrast between the current 
avian influenza outbreak and the one that happened in 2015, um, both were pretty devastating in terms of the numbers of, of chickens and broiler chickens, egg-laying chickens and turkeys that were impacted so far. But this one now, and it started almost exactly a year ago, has has now affected barns, farms in 47 states at least. In 2015, it was concentrated primarily in the Mississippi and Pacific flyways and really hit 15 states hard. So it's been more widespread. And the difference is really that in 2015, maybe wild birds might have been a carrier, but they didn't really get affected very much. This current version of avian influenza has been much more devastating on the wild bird population. Chris, do you learn a little bit about wild birds when you go to something like this? I didn't realize we had maybe 800 different species of wild birds in the United States, give or take. And they've tested and they have found, um, they had over 6,000 positive tests among wild birds last year and over 100 different species. In, in 2015, very few species affected, very few wild birds affected. Maybe they found like 100 wild birds that were affected in the 2015 testing. It's been much more impacted on the wild bird population, which means it's a broader array of waterfowl and wild birds that can then put your farm at risk and be hit that maybe you didn't think about as much before. So that that was an interesting aspect to it. And because of that shift or challenge in the wild bird population, this makes this outbreak now, as one university professor said, a new reality for poultry producers, because it if your biosecurity slips even a little bit, there's a greater chance that you can be, be infected. This, this version of a high path avian influenza that we're seeing now is much more intense apparently and stronger than the version that was in 2015. And that's affecting geese, ducks. Unfortunately, then it's also affecting the raptors that we all like, the hawks, the eagles, and some mammals are being affected. Raccoons, foxes, coyotes, the kind of animal that sees a, you know, finds a dead bird by the pond and goes, oh, great, lunch. And then they get in, they get sick. It's, it's caused more complications this time around. And that was a really eye-opening discussion on avian influenza. I wish USDA would have more, would have had more of those type of discussions throughout the year rather than holding back for their, for their conference. But, but it was interesting to hear some of the talk about high path avian influenza through the week. Circling back to and kind of outlook announcements or forecasts, I think there was an updated livestock industry forecast from USDA. I'm curious what you heard and whether I think maybe more than with crops, which feels a little bit more like a shot in the dark at this time of year. Cattle is a little bit more continuous of a industry to follow. So I'm curious what you heard in terms of USDA's outlook there. One of the biggest factors is they're able to obviously simply take a look and see how much people have held back heifers or culled out animals over the past year. And given that this, we're still in retraction mode, basically with the cattle herd nationally, that's going to translate though into pushing up fed cattle prices. The 
we'll probably also see maybe an increase in more imports of live cattle from Canada and Mexico as well. In the grand scheme of things, for the first time in basically a decade, we'll produce a little bit less red meat than than before. We had a record amount, though, in 2022, but it'll dial back about 500 million pounds, give or take. And so we'll see a little bit less red meat and poultry production in 2023, which should translate into stronger prices. It's definitely for the cattle producers. Now we'll see a little more supposedly swine production. And even with what's been going on with avian influenza, USDA expects that broiler population will rebound and be a little higher, slightly higher than in 2022. We'll see if that forecast holds, but so It'll translate in a little more positive pricing, but that'll also then lead probably to higher prices for uh, consumers, especially for beef. I wonder if you can talk, there was a Food, Ag, and Climate Alliance meeting to talk about some of the policy agenda set there, but I think you also had the chance to attend maybe a Senate hearing on conservation where some folks had a discussion there about what the conservation programs might look like in a farm bill if we have a farm bill this year or at some point have a farm bill. Yeah. What are you hearing in terms of maybe where some flags are being put in the ground on farm bill 2023? Yeah, the the FACA group, which makes up more than 80 different agricultural and environmental groups, and they, they get the who's who of everybody involved in that. And they came out with a lot of recommendations last week of things they would like to see suggest in the farm bill. There's this uh, real tug and pull among different people about conservation programs, primarily focusing on climate issues, whether it's carbon sequestration or reducing emissions. And of course, those programs and those climate smart practices have other benefits as well. They translate into improvements in water quality. They translate into more biodiversity. There are various other benefits in terms of soil health improvement, et cetera. But from the Republican side, they view it as fixation on climate and they want to quote to make sure that conservation programs are addressing what they say local resource concerns was a phrase that was used used a lot in the Senate hearing. But, but the FACA proposals did talk about even considering at least incentives in the crop insurance programs that maybe give some incentives for farmers to to use some of these practices. Again, Republicans have been really trying to hold the line, so to speak, and not crossing crop insurance with conservation programs, et cetera, viewing those as totally separate items. So you got to see where some people were coming from on some of these conservation issues in the Senate Agriculture Committee. Which, uh, which is always maybe a little more moderate in terms of its views compared to the House Agriculture Committee on some of that. But, uh, but there's also the issue of whether we need more money in conservation because the Inflation Reduction Act already provides $19.5 billion in extra money for USDA conservation programs. You actually see maybe taking away a little bit of that money to do some other things. It's Farm Bill is always partially looking around to figure out where's an extra pot of money sitting that we can use somewhere else. Probably the only possible place where there's a little bit of extra money 
is is in the conservation title. We'll see how, how that plays out going forward in terms of trying to shift money away from conservation, maybe the other things. There was also a vote on the House side, I think, on that Waters of the U.S. rule that has been being talked about. Tell me what you saw, what you heard. I think that the I think the House Republicans were really primed and 100% convinced that the Supreme Court ruling was going to come out on the Sackett case on on Tuesday, and because I had already gotten emails before the meeting that preparing to email me quotes about the Sackett ruling once it comes in, and uh, the fact that they had a hearing in the House Agriculture Committee on regulatory challenges and the waters of the U.S. was front and center. That's going on. And then in a separate committee, the House Transportation Committee and Infrastructure Committee, they were the ones that moved ahead with the bill that would allow the House to pass a resolution um, to, to try to revoke the rule on the waters of the U.S., and of course, this would have to pass both the House, it would have to pass the Senate, but it just takes a majority vote in both of them. So there, it is that possibility. But it did move out of the House committee. I'm sure it'll move to the House floor at some time, and they will vote on it. They may very well take a shot at trying to, every time the Supreme Court comes up with their rulings, to anticipate and time it. Because if the ruling had come out and the ruling had come out the way everybody thinks it's going to be, rejecting EPA's previous Waters of the U.S. rule. Republicans are just going to have a field day with WOTUS. I'll have a hard time confusing WOTUS and WOKE. It'll just get confusing. If, but there will be another vote on that, and it'll pass the House. I don't know about the Senate. It'll certainly be vetoed by, by the president, but, but it, there's a timeliness aspect to it just simply because of whatever's going to happen with that Supreme Court decision. And then I guess last thing I'd love to hear, you mentioned that you've gotten to spend the last couple of days with some, not some U.S. landowners, but some EU landowners who are in the U.S. learning about U.S. policy and U.S. ag in contrast to maybe what they know from back home. Talk a little bit about that experience and what you learned. Yeah, it was quite fun. It was a group of about 30 European farmers and landowners, forest owners from several different countries who are interested in climate policy, but trying to figure out how to reshape. Europe is always far more focused on the their willingness to, to regulate something in agriculture than the United States is in terms of climate smart programs and the biotechnology and things of that nature. These guys who came over were far more envious of our regulatory regime than what they have in Europe. And um, they were curious about how carbon credits were functioning for farmers, what's going on in that space, what else is, we talked a lot about biofuel issues as well. And there are bill, there are laws coming into effect in Europe that are going to be really complicated coming down the line. I actually have a soil health legislation in Europe that could penalize landowners and farmers if if they're not doing a certain set of practices, at least, to to protect the resiliency of the land. That is a pretty big stick, basically, for landowners. 
And uh, so for the European side of things, they were certainly far more interested in as what all of our policy people maintain voluntary incentive-based conservation measures. But it was very interesting to talk to some of these guys about some of the issues and challenges with, with Europe that they've been going through. You can read Chris's full coverage of the Ag Outlook Forum, as well as his extensive reporting on all things ag policy at dtnpf.com or in the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Chris Clayton. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.